All right, here we go. You ready? All ready? Eight o'clock finish. Uh, uh, This message is about being a better friend to those who are suffering. This message is about being a better friend to those who are suffering. So let's pray. Father, give us insight and love for our friends, our family who are struggling with suffering. And that we pray for the war family uh, even even now as we as we pray to you. We pray especially for our friends who struggle with you. Help us to sit with them, to offer compassion and faith, our faith, the faith, the one that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Empathy is so hot right now. There are books, lectures, podcasts on empathy. There is even, I discovered this week, an empathy museum in the UK. Ironically, it's quite small. (laughs) I'm guessing... I'm guessing empathy is hot right now, in part because Western society has become so fractious. I listen to your media. We all do. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Anything is better than a fractious mess, you might say. In a world where people rarely listen, and where shouting is a form of persuasion, and arguments are made with emotional flooding, Empathy, you might say, seems like a very good idea. Google uh, Brené Brown and empathy and you'll see a rabbit hole of material on the question of empathy. When I did that, I got this image right here. You can see this sort of thing with the friends when they first arrive. The, three, the four friends. Elihu, by the way, I believe, I believe is there. He doesn't speak until... 32. In chapter 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They probably should have stayed in that position. When Job's three friends start speaking in chapter 4, they muddy the waters. The book of Job could have finished at the end of chapter 3. It could have. Job suffers, he worships God, he he didn't sin with his lips, He who stands firm will be saved. Didn't Jesus say that? And here is Job at the end of chapter 3, standing firm. But the friends enter and everything changes. More suffering to go in the guise of his friend's words. No, Jesus doesn't say, the one who stands firm will be saved. He says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And Job makes it to the end through the muddy waters of his friends. 
it could be said that the three friends of Job and Elihu later needed more empathy. And while I contend that that might be true, empathy surely is first base in what you could learn. There is, of course, so much more. The ancient book of Job is a book about suffering, yes, but it really is a book about God and wrestling with God. You too have suffered, if not now or in the past, you will in the future, and so have your friends. What were you like in that moment? And could you have done a better job? This message here is about sitting with your friends as you wrestle with God together. Today we're going to touch in and all over Job 4 through 28. So you'll need to have a Bible open and decide which passages you follow with me. You, you decide. The story, of course, we just heard. Job's a good man, fears God, shuns evil, loses everything in a tsunami of pain, but his life, he doesn't know why, so he sits down in dust and ashes. No rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. It's like he and his friends sit down to the jigsaw puzzle of Job's life. And there are five of them around the table, and there's a you know, table, it's got to be round, it's, 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 you know. Maybe Elihu arrives later and it's a card table. Who knows? <laughs> but they sit down to a card table and they've got the jigsaw puzzle of Job's life in front of them and Job says the pieces don't fit. The puzzle is faulty. But his friends say, actually, the puzzle does fit. It really does. You just have to make them fit. And we'll make them fit for you. You'll see that as you go along. The reader, of course, knows what neither Job nor his friends know or will ever find out. The reader is told in 1 and 2 that he suffers for a very, very specific reason, that this is a test, is that the right word? To see if Job fears God only for the things, the hedge. Take away the hedge, says Satan, and Job will do what everyone does. He'll curve in on self, he'll curse you, he'll curse God and die. But Job, of course, doesn't have access to this very, very specific reason. And so he prays and he agonizes. And in 3 through 37, he argues with his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and later Elihu. In the end, he wants God to show up, which God does it in a whirlwind in chapter 38. And in the end, as we heard a moment ago, Job does get up. And we're asking the question, can we get up too out of our dust and ashes? So three points to this evening. One... What the miserable comforters argued in broad brushstrokes. Each have their uh, nuance, and I'll bring out some nuance, and they develop as time goes on, but they basically make a single point. Secondly, what we learn, and thirdly, what Job prayed in the suffering. So firstly, what the miserable comforters argued. Have you got it? Yellow is where we're up to. That means if you're not off for about two minutes... You can sort of still know where we are. <laughs> okay. What the miserable comforters argue. 4 through 27 are long-winded conversations and prayers. Any of you who read it this week knows what I'm talking about. You're like, could this stop soon? Job, of course, was saying the same thing as you. Uh, the three friends in 4 through 27 are trying to help Job, or are they? They're trying to help Job and defend God in the same breath. 
in three rounds of dialogue that we'll touch in this evening. And I'm going to talk about Eliphaz, then Bildad, then Zophar, if you're writing notes in the booklet. Job sums up their words in chapter 19, verse 2. Chapter 19, verse 2. He said, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? You know, how long, O Lord? It's like, how long, Zophar? How long, Bildad? How long, Eliphaz? Will you break me to pieces with your words? In chapter 13, verse 4, he calls them worthless physicians. You've come to heal, uh, you know, with your scalpel, and it's just a bloody mess. The phrase, who needs enemies with friends like these, was made for Job. (laughs) So firstly, Eliphaz and his spiritual experience, you can see that on your outline. Eliphaz says in chapter 4, verse 2, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Do you mind if I say something? But who can keep from speaking? I have to speak. Eliphaz basically says to Job, look, at first glance, this is normal. What you're experiencing happens to all flesh. In 4 verse 19, he says, we live, we all live in houses of clay. And we can all be crushed more readily than a moth. That could happen to any one of us. In chapter 4 verse 21, he says, in the end, the cords about tend to pulled up. That's true for everybody. We'll all experience death. Sorry to break it to you. And we'll all pack up shop and return to the dust. That's all of us, Eliphaz says. That may be true, but for Job, Eliphaz reckons it must be something else. It must be something more. He believes that Job must be suffering because of such suffering. He must be suffering because he thinks he's sinless. Job must be suffering, Eliphaz reckons, because Job must think he's sinless. He claims that Job thinks that he's more righteous than God. Later, he'll call Job a fool and uh, tells him to appeal to God. You go and appeal to God and you'll find out what I'm saying is true, that you're a sinner. How does he know this? On what basis does he make this speech? And the answer is in 4 verse 12. It's from a mystical experience. He believes that God has given him a word. Look at 4 verse 12. Follow with me. A word has secretly, was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It, the spirit, stopped. But I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a crushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker. So I've heard God is correcting you. In chapter 5, verse 27, he concludes, we have examined this and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. There's a full stop here. We discussed it and this thing I just said is true and so, you know, you've heard the sermon and it's time for a little (laughs) self-application. The friends have all agreed, so buck up Job. Eliphaz is a mystic. You might call an early charismatic. But like many who claim to have such experiences, and importantly not all, 
like many who claim to have such experiences, they often claim an authority that isn't there. They claim that their experience is enough to impose what they think or they believe. A couple of things to note. First, he's not all wrong. We really are frail. But his speech doesn't apply in this very, very specific situation. It doesn't apply to Job. In chapter 6, this just riles Job up. He says, you guys, he responds, you guys are like a dry creek bed. There's nothing refreshing at all about you. <laughs> chapter 6, verse 24, teach me and I'll be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. Sometimes we get intense spiritual moments. After all, there really is a God. And there really is a Holy Spirit. But in the end, our own experiences cannot carry the kind of authority that Eliphaz places on it. You could also ask the question where this spirit came from. Although the spirit speaks a truth. Can it make it be more righteous than God? What's the answer? No. That experience may truly have happened, but in the end, God says it's wrong, or wrongly applied to Job. Just because something is spiritual and intense does not make it right. We need what some have called epistemic humility. We'll come back to those two words in a little while. So Bildad in chapter 8. Bildad starts aggressively. So turn to 8 verse 2. 8 verse 2. Bildad, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? You must have sinned. We believe in God. Or your kids did. Right? 8 verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So you'll need to do some repenting. Verse 5, but if you will seek God earnestly and plead with your mighty, if you are pure and upright, even now God will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. So Bildad defends God. God only makes someone suffer in this way. If they've sinned, if they've sinned ergo, you must have sinned. Greatly. By the way, I did this at church, and this lovely lady came to me afterwards and said, after all this, she said, so let me get this right. Job suffered like that because he'd sinned. And I'm like, did I not communicate this clearly enough? Was I speaking too quickly? I mean, shit. That's not what's going on. How does Bildad know this? Well, it is accepted among us. It is our way. Our traditions tell us that it is so. 8 verse 8, ask the former generations, Job, and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were only born yesterday and we know nothing and our days are but a shadow. Will they, the former generations, not instruct you and tell you, will they not bring forth words from their understanding? So he's drawing on tradition. And tradition is good. After all, G.K. Chesterton famously said... Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. <laughs> it is the democracy of the dead. It's their voice when they can't speak. Bildad would subscribe wholeheartedly and say, you take, might say he's an early conservative. Just because something is from former generations, for Bildad means it's true, but it doesn't make it true just because others have believed it. And certainly doesn't make it true in the particular. God may and does, in fact, use tradition to reveal his truth. But truth lies in God, not in the tradition itself. 
and uh, of course must be weighed against the word of God. Job replies, gosh, you don't think I know all this? <laughs> Chapter 13, verse 1, my eyes have seen all of this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know, I'm not inferior to you. You're speaking to me as though I'm an inferior, and I'm not. I know exactly what you know. Verse 3, 13 verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. We'll come back to that. As for you, you, you whitewashed with lies, you worthless physicians, are, all, are you all? Oh, that you would keep silent. And uh, being silent, that would be your wisdom. You say it best when you say nothing at all. There's a double meaning in that. <laughs> Thirdly, Zophar. Zophar, and his tough word. In chapter 11, Job responds, in chapter 11, Zophar knows the truth and he'll speak the truth, he'll straight talk. He is, you might call, an early fundamentalist. The harder the word, the more likely it is to be true. <laughs> so in chapter 11, verse 2, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk, i.e. Job, be judged right? No way. Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. And that's half-truth. Verse 5, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. By the way, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> if you know the end of the story. And that he, God, would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You know, God has actually been kind to you, Job. The stuff you're experiencing, he's actually been light on you. It must have been worse than this. Zophar is quite easy to read, but if you find the friends hard, go to Zophar. Simple, plain. Repent and God will restore you. Now, all three friends have one thing in common. They lay the blame at Job's feet in an attempt to defend God. The only other option for them is to lay it at God's feet, and they won't do that. So they'll defend God at the expense of their friend Job, instead of saying something like, I don't know. I don't know why you are suffering, Job, but stay strong. We're here. God is good. You can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. I read that somewhere. You like that? Say clearly. <laughs> With an American accent? Yeah. <laughs> I should have put it up behind me. You can't. You can't. can't. <laughs> you can't trace his hand. You can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. Don't know what he's doing. You can trust God. They could have said something like that. Okay. Second point, what we learn. First thing we learn is that people, friends, can be neat, plausible and wrong. <laughs> neat, plausible and wrong. His friends think they are right. Their answers fit neatly with their theology. One of them, of course, even claims a word from above and it all can seem very plausible, but they are wrong. And the reader knows this. Job is not experiencing suffering because he'd sinned. The opposite is true. The reader knows this from chapters 1 and 2, and God points this out in chapter 42. Not the heavenly court, but that he's not sinned. That he said what is right. 
So they have what you might call epistemic pride, which is they think they know what they're talking about. They think they're right. So everyone with me? Epistemology is the study of what you can and can't know. So epistemic humility is when you're humble about what you can't know. When you're humble about what you can't know. Those of us who have strong doctrines, those of us with intense experiences of God, can find ourselves very certain about such things, and we need to be careful about what we claim by these truths and these experiences. Overconfidence with our doctrines, with terrific arguments, can add to someone else's pain. Because it can lead to, it's possible it can lead to, an inappropriate application. When you got it all correct, I, I, I met with a set of pastors who I think were abusing a young man. And he couldn't meet with them too, because he was, he was too. So I met with the pastors. And I read the letter that they wrote to him on his departure from the church. And it was absolutely full of Bible verses. Full of them. And at each point I said to the pastors, no, you can't just put a Bible verse in this rebuke of him without explaining how that Bible verse applies to him. You can't just have a verse which says, judge, judge not lest you be judged, unless you tell me how he's been a judger of you. He said, filled it up with Bible verses, but I believe inappropriately applied. It was a cult. You can make a lot of people listen by being certain, and you can get a lot of people to do things with certainty, saying a word has come to me from God. But in this case, it is not right. And the reader knows this. All of us need to be humble about God, certainly humble about what we don't know, and even humble about what we do know. What's that text in Deuteronomy 29, 29, or is it 31, 31? The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever. Where is that? 29, 29, or 31, 31? 29, 29. I knew it was a double whammy. <laughs> you know your 316s, I know my double whammies. <laughs> okay, people can be neat, plausible, and wrong. I don't have this. Secondly, it's in your outline. Secondly, you are free to resist a foolish word. What does Job do instead? He doesn't buy any of his friend's <coughs> argument. He resists. And this will take strength for you to resist uh, things that aren't true. As an aside, Paul often offers the Galatian Christians the same advice. They've come to you with some certainty. Have you just done Galatians? You all, have you just done Galatians? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Paul says, resist them. What they're saying sounds neat, plausible, and true. You must resist. But it's not just because I don't, I don't need this negativity in my life. By the way, I'm going to resist you because I don't need this negativity in my life. That's not this. That's, a, that's not always, but often avoiding truth. That's not this. I, I'm happy to receive negativity if it's, if it's rightly applied. In chapter 12, verse 1, Job answered and said, chapter 12, verse 1, you might like to look at it, chapter 12, verse 1, Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You are the man, and wisdom will, apply with, uh, will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you, 
I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? You're telling me things I already know. Job never stops fighting in the book. And he fights for a simple reason. Namely that he believes, you, you friends, you can't know why I'm suffering. Your answers don't fit. The puzzle doesn't work. You're saying it works. I'm telling you it doesn't work. Third thing to learn. Sitting with a friend, sitting with compassion, and speaking with humility wins every time. When the friends first arrived, they said nothing to verse 13, for they saw how suffering, it saw his suffering was very great. Sitting with people for a season is a very good idea and without words. But then the friends had to get up and go and defend God, honourable, of course, until they get above their pay grade. They speak untruths about God because they can't know the specific thing that's taking place. Job tells them what to do. In chapter 21, verse 5, he says, look at me and be appalled. You know, I'll tell you what to do. Just stare at me for a little while. And you might stop talking. In chapter 19, verse 21, he says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. And that's not good. That's not good. For any of us who have grown up with a prayer book, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. Psalm 51. This time it's, have mercy on me, friends. Look at me. Look at me. But they're not looking at him. They're looking past him. They ought to have just sat with compassion. They ought to have spoken with humility. You are right, Job. We don't know. God is good. He does punish sin. But this doesn't fit. How can we help you? I don't know why you are suffering, but stay strong. God is good. You can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. In the end, the friends are too busy arguing to pray with him, too busy defending God, so Job prays himself. Third and finally, what Job prayed in the suffering. So I believe he answers his friends, but because there's no wisdom really coming, some truths but wrongly applied, he then says, well, I've I got nowhere else to go but God. Because you want to help him. What God wants, uh, what Job wants and prays about is important. And it's important if you ever feel like your friends have failed you. Go to God. Job does. Pray to Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. If you've ever felt like your friends have failed you. In uh, Job 15, verse 15, Jesus says on the eve of his own innocent death, he says, uh, instead I've called, John 15, 15, you have to look it up. John 15, 15, instead I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus in the end is the true friend. I flicked at a book this afternoon at the Sears at home about uh, women caught in domestic violence situations. And the book said this. Um, the book said, depressed women I work with often feel unworthy, unlovable, dirty and defiled. We counter this not by fearing their stories, but by wading into their shame. Not by fearing their stories. 
I do wonder whether the friends feared Job's story. They had to talk above him about God, defend God. I do wonder whether Job's comment, look at me and be appalled, is an invitation for them to wade into his pain. The book goes on. This is vital for their healing. Jesus drank from the cup that was offered to him by the women at the well. His fingers touched the leper as he healed him. Jesus did not show concern for himself. His actions were focused on making those who felt unworthy feel loved, known and cared for. We need to sit and speak with people in ways that lift the unique shame that oppression brings. That's the only thing I read in that book. Pretty impressive. So, four things, briefly. First, I need God to come. Uh, And that's the first thing Job prays about. What he prayed in the suffering. I need God to come. So flip to chapter 13 for me. Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. If you want to, or if you're just happy to listen, that's fine. Chapter 13, verse 3. Job says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. I want God to turn up. Chapter 13, verse 20, a little bit further down. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. Withdraw your hand of suffering and pain, and show me your face. Because all I can see is the hand. This is an early, you know, talk to the hand. Oh, really, that's what it is. Because you can only see the hand and not the face. So take this away and I'll find something up about you, your face. He wants God's face there with him for God to draw near to him in his dust and ashes so he can find out how the pieces of the puzzle fit. In the crucible, are you there? In the depths, will you lift me out? In my pain, will you listen to my case, my course? Now, many of us in this room, we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in our depths, God came right there in the crucible, in our weakness and frailty, indeed, in our sin. God came in the man, Jesus Christ. This is good news that in his resurrection in Christ, God lifts me up from the dust and the ashes. That's the first prayer. Second prayer is, I need an arbiter. I need someone to stand between me and God. Back to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 32. Chapter 9, verse 32. I wish that this were true, but it's not. I wish this were true, but it's not. 9, verse 32. God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. I wish I could confront God in a court. Verse 33, 9, verse 33. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more than I would speak up without fear of him. But as it stands with me, I cannot. I need an arbiter. I want someone to stand between me and God, someone to remove God's hand of apparent wrath, someone to take away the pain. You know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when God came, he came in the man Jesus Christ as the mediator between me and and my Father in heaven, to remove God's wrath from me by dying for me. This is good news. And it lifts me up from my dust and ashes. 
So I need God to come, and I need an arbiter. And third, I need resurrection hope. I need hope, but not just any hope, but resurrection hope. Just two weeks ago, I was sitting in a men's shed uh, for our local community. And uh, all these blokes were sort of sitting around, and they asked the question, what can you contribute uh, to a men's shed? And one guy said, I build rocket ships. And the next guy said, I built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And the next guy said, you know, I can... Uh, whip up a temple in three days, and you know, they were, all, they were all good men with... I said, I'm clergy. So that basically means I do nothing with my hands, you know. <laughs> and uh, I said, I deal in grace and hope. That's not true of Carrie, by the way. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, I deal with... <laughs> I said, I deal in hope. And uh, this guy said to me, oh, we all need a little bit of hope. And it wasn't appropriate in that room, but I will hopefully get a chance to say to him, when I said that, I didn't mean any hope. I meant a particular hope. Resurrection hope. You see, against all hope, and in faith, Job says in 19 verse 25, in 19 verse 25, he says, perhaps in anguish. I'm not sure if he has... I mean, it's certainty, but... but what kind of certainty is it? I don't know. But he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I believe it. Whom I shall see for myself. My, and my eyes shall behold. And not another. My eyes. And not another. Oh, how my heart faints within me. Even if I were to waste away here, I know that I'll see God in my flesh with my own eyes. And that hope leads him to stay standing and to be dignified in the suffering, to see a possibility that there is rhyme and reason, that there is method in the madness. Perhaps someday I'll be able to see how the puzzle fits. It was Handel's Messiah, of course, that took this extraordinary passage and set it to music in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when God came in our depth as a mediator, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so that we can say, not just in anguish, but with confidence, I know that my Redeemer lives, and his name is Jesus Christ. Fourth and finally, I need wisdom from above in chapter 28. Now, chapter 28 is so important, and in dialogue with Kerry, there was an iteration that had chapter 28 as its own message. But time is against us. Chapter 28 is so important. An interlude in the middle of Job. Like a little breather. And uh, in it, we read that humans will dig for gold and silver and they'll do anything to get it. They'll go to where no beast will ever go, dangling down a, a, a mine to find the silver and gold and precious stones that they're looking for. But if you were to go and look for wisdom, where would you go? Where's the mine? Where's the place you turn up? He says there's nowhere in creation where you can find wisdom, not not the kind that God has to offer. In chapter 28, verse 20, he says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? Chapter 28, verse 23, God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its place. For God looks at the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Verse 28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil 
is understanding. In other words, Job was wise in the beginning. In the meantime, be a better friend. Sit, listen, be empathetic, of course. And some of you can be sympathetic since you've been through what they've been through. But speak too. Speak the gospel, not getting above your pay grade and with epistemic humility. Speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, listening with compassion and humility. Let me pray. Father, when we see a friend suffer, it is not easy to look at them. We all know that experience of going to a funeral and not wanting to go uh, because it's too hard to look. But we ask you that we will do what is required of us in that moment. To look, to notice, to see, and to sit, and to listen, and to care. Father, we care about you and we care about your name in all the earth. You do too, and it's for this reason that you sent your son to die, that your name may be hallowed in all the earth. But Father, may we never be found to defend you in a way that drives someone seeking you further into the dust and the ashes. May we speak the truth with a humility and not an arrogance. Father, may we humble ourselves before your mighty hand that you may lift us up in due time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Seven minutes. Comments or questions? Or disagreements, by the way. Or experiences. Experiences, too. Make sure that each person gets a chance. You've got the first dibs that nobody else does. Off you go. Oh, okay. Uh, so why do you think the writer spends so much time on these Friends. tiresome arguments? From the book? Yeah, right. Right, if I wrote the book, it'd be done in, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd give it a generous attention. Oh, the question, by the way, is why spend so much time on it? Why spend so much time on the Friends' arguments? I mean, it's a lot of chapters. And, you know, it's not like I can smash out a first draft on a computer and then delete it. We're talking about expensive... I, you know what? I don't know the answer, except that the water gets muddier and muddier. I don't, I, I, I don't know if somebody else might have an answer to that. Because um, that's what people do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they keep talking. <laughs> and that's what people do. Thank they you. just talk across the top of issues and people because they don't have wisdom, so they speak across it. And maybe if it had been three chapters, we would not have learnt the profuse abundance of words. The feeling you got from it as you read it and just kept going, you thought, please just stop. Laurel? That's what I was going to say. Is, I mean, one, it's Joe's story, but also it's for us. We're reading it. And one way to get us to experience just how annoying that is is to actually make us read it all the way through. Like, I don't know. That's just thinking of it in terms of literature. But we experience how difficult, like, please stop talking. <laughs> but, you know, in chapter 28, which is an interlude, 
in chapter 28, which is an interlude, you know, where's wisdom to be found? Uh, it's not found in the land of the living, which is a really interesting concept. You know, well, it is. Go to university. That's where you find wisdom. And the answer is, actually, universities are just trying to parse the wisdom that comes from God in the first place, I believe. But, um, but I do wonder whether, in chapter 28, when it says human beings will do anything to get wisdom, you know, they'll dangle where no beast has gone, they'll invent lamps and devices and human ingenuity to mine and to get the gold and the silver. You know, in other words, treasure has to be dug for. Uh, you know, if it's easily granted, then it isn't... Um, it isn't tre- well, it isn't treasure, yeah. You know, I, I, I've never read Lord of the Rings because I can't get through the first 200 pages, right? And it's, it's you know, I've only heard that they're, they're hard. <laughs> and I, I wonder, it's, it's hard not to believe that Tolkien was thinking, I'm only going to yield this treasure to the people who get through this description of the tree that goes through six pages. And if you're not interested in me getting through six pages of a description of a tree, then you won't have the joy of, you know, Mordor being rings chucked into somewhere. <laughs> treasure has to be dug for. Hold on, Ken has something done. Yeah, I, um, um, see, I get, I got sidetracked. <laughs> You're off with some rock monster, aren't you? <laughs> you know, the, 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 the earliest book of scripture is the And it's amazing, isn't it, that um, that thousands of years ago, and you know, they had a sense of there should be order in the universe. Yeah. There must be a God, and they're just not like we're not like <coughs> sheep who go, oh well, you know, if I got grass and a hut, and you know, I bleated when my lamb was taken away from me, but then I got over it in a, you know half a day. You know, it's, we're just not like that. Right. Yeah. Russ. I just I don't remember who asked the question about the hedge. Was that you, Sean? Yeah. What was? Can you can you? Because I was, I, I, I haven't stopped thinking about that question. Yeah, it was, you know, what is it, Romans 8 and 28 or whatever. We're, you know, we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our whole purpose for existence as Christians. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to be like Christ. And Kathy will tell me that hasn't happened much yet. No, no, seriously, don't. And, you know, she'll say, I'm, I've come a long way over the last 40 plus years or so. Um, and it's true, but I've only come this far in a field this big. Yeah. And so the only way that I'm going to get conformed, I think, is for, I mean, I'm very blessed with a wonderful life and family and career, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, you know, I just don't see how realistically I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ without going through a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and it's interesting, you, so, it's interesting, your death. Well, is going to be well, that, part of how you, how you die is actually important. That'll be a, that'll be a big part. Of right. It. There's no question about it. The reason yeah. I but, ask but, that. The, but the thing is, even if, if you have that conviction that I know that my redeemer lives and I know that I'm going to be resurrected bodily because Jesus was resurrected, then that's a huge hedge in a way, right? I mean, that's the ultimate hedge. But all the other things that are important to us, you know, you just you just know that. God's going to really have to mold this piece of clay pretty, pretty emphatically. 
Yeah, we've got eight, but well, Russ. I'm, I'm not going to expand too much. That's actually where I thought that question should have landed. Christ is our hedge. Right. He, he right. is all those things. That's how, and that's lay, that hedge gets us through. Yeah. Right, and, but if hedges are things, just worth saying, if I had a choice between the hedge and God, yeah. I'll choose God every time. And Christ gets me there. I'm going to process that. God the hedge. Wow. <laughs> I've got, I've got a, this gentleman's had his hand up there. Um, I just had a question going back to maybe what we were saying earlier about uh, the friends kind of going on and on. There's a lot of stuff in Job that Job says, and his friends say, we hold in a negative light. A lot of it is very poetically written, though, and a lot of it resonates with us, especially people that are going through suffering, some of the things that Job says. Um, and even some of the things that the friends say are true. I think my Bible attributes a quote from. Uh, the Apostle Paul to, you know, read differently in that original language to something that one of his friends said. Um, what is, how do you approach that um, in terms of knowing, like, it, overall, we don't like, you know, to have a negative view of friends, and even Job himself is rebuked by God. How do you approach the verses or the, the passages in Job that... Um, Are true. Yeah, there's plenty of them. Why'd you get that? Well, Elihu, full of them. What's the rubric for kind of determining, oh, this is trustworthy or that's, you know, some And what's interesting, by the way, you reap what you sow, picked up by the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian correspondence, you reap what you sow, is one of the friends says to Job to attack him. Paul uses it positively. Isn't that fascinating? I think, I think the answer is pretty simple. Truth wrongly applied is just genuinely problematic. Um, you can say things that are true, but not true in the specific. And that's devastating. It, it, I mean, there's no more time, but it'd be interesting to, to play around with... Um, so we have to have humility in how we say things. That's true. It's one thing to say, it could be, have you considered. Right. It's another thing to, like you said, be so self-assured. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm speaking about my paper. I cannot say that without humility. Right. Uh, maybe one, one quote that's been clarifying as far as that thought goes for me is, uh, this is this is the difference between knowledge or truth and wisdom. Um, knowledge or truth is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing to not put it into a fruit salad. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> And an example of that, I think, is in 1 Corinthians, Romans 14 and 13 or 14 and and the Corinthian correspondence about eating meat of idols. You know, you know the truth that this, that all the the whole earth is God's and you can eat. You know the truth, but, you know, by eating you might cause your brother to sin. It's one thing to know that you can be right about that. And unloving or a jerk at the same time. And, uh, and I think that's something going on here. There's a lot, Elihu's speech prefigures God's words. Like, not, a, not, not a mirror, but a, but a setting up. But he still says, you know, you're, you're in the wrong job. You must be. It's, it's as simple as that, by the way. The other way to put it is they want to draw a, a, a hard line not a dotted line. What's the opposite of a dotted line? A solid. solid line. They want to draw a solid line between
between the suffering that Job is experiencing and the sin. But they could have drawn a dotted one, which is might, maybe. Who sinned, John 9, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And there's another circumstance where you can't know the specific. Because Jesus says, I know the specific. The specific is that this man was born blind so that you see the glory of God. That's not true of all blind people, and not all blind people have experienced the miracle of healing. It is true of this blind man that you would see the glory of God. In other words, they were drawing a hard line. Who sinned this man or his parents? I mean, they gave two options, right? One egg or two. But, you know, but there was a dotted line there that Jesus says, I can tell you what's going on here, because I know. I'm, I'm, we've got, like, hands everywhere. Kerry, do you want to come and moderate this? What do you want me to do? <laughs> well, get Andrew over on the right. He's over there for a while. Andrew, sorry. Peripheral oh, vision. Just a, mine's just a quick comment. I think one of the reasons why I want to get through the friends while I'm reading it is because it reveals my heart. I think it reveals my, ten, my tendency as a person, as Proverbs warns us, not to lean on my own wisdom and understanding. Yeah. And I think my tendency is to say, especially when you have friends or people around you who are mourning and suffering, and they're asking questions or they're venting and they're processing in our sinful nature, we do. Well, I have the right theology. Here it is. And I apply it in that moment without, like you were saying, listening. Mm. And being, you know, gentle, and so I, that's why I'm always like, stop talking, because you're revealing my heart. I'm in. I'm in. I've got Sean here, Kerry. What do you want me to do? Actually, go over to Trevor. Trevor? Uh, well, yeah, no. I just, I just noticed how in chapter three it mentions how the friends sat with him in ashes and looked at him like kind of like, for seven days, and then what kind of broke that was him cursing and curse. And I was just curious, because we're talking about how they were talking a lot, but I feel like we kind of just zoomed over the fact that they did in fact just sit with him for seven days in silence. Mm. And so I was just curious as if you had any thoughts on like why that shit happened once Job broke the silence, yeah. or if they were just waiting for him to break it? Or... And the text doesn't say, does it? Unless anybody show me otherwise. I, so you don't know. You get a sense that they you do know that they sat with him because they saw how suffering his great was. So they didn't look at him. They saw how appalling it was. He speaks and they respond to that by saying, I've got to start talking. And they, there's another point where they talk about, you know, well, Ellie talked about being bottled up inside. I have to start talking. So there's a possibility that for seven days they sat in silence and that's good. But in that time, they're doing a lot of thinking about the thing they're about to say. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. We need to uh, wrap up just because we had child care going on. So uh, kids need to get to bed. So thank you, Justin. <laughs> Remember to be back here uh, at 9 tomorrow morning, uh, sharp, so we can get, get started. And uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have an ancient, ancient, ancient text that speaks so clearly your wisdom, reveals not only you, but reveals us in our own hearts. And uh, Lord, we pray that we uh, can learn wisdom uh, this weekend. May we learn it, and may we learn to love you more. In your name, amen. Amen. amen.